0: me or somehow, somehow back on his feet. Bandido fans have seen this before.
1: Hello, everyone. It's Jack from Cultaholic with my first ever solo venture of a podcast. I'm a bit of a nervous Nelson. Because I've never really done this before, but I'm sure it'll be all right. Welcome to Matches of the Month. Bit of a working title. Every month I'll look at the greatest bouts that have taken place across the wrestling world. USA, Japan, maybe the UK, maybe Mexico, wherever the great bouts have happened. And then at the end, I'll kind of keep a a regularly updated top 10 at the end of each month of my personal matches of the year. And then by the end of the year, we should hopefully have, um, or at least I will have, my top 10 matches. But it's to help you as well, because in listening to this... Hopefully you might hear about some matches that you've missed. You might be inspired to check some of them out and maybe even step beyond your comfort zone because I'm doing that as well. This month, just in researching this first edition of the podcast, I've looked at some matches from promotions that I've barely ever even really watched ever. It's not just about the matches of the month. It's about analysing what is likely to be the match of the year when all is said and done, the match of 2023. And I think that this month we've already had one prime prime candidate that could still be in the conversation 11 months down the line well we're heading to japan
0: so a forearm driven right in the back of the head of omega and now osprey look at Os cutter here we go Oz, no. oh no wait a minute no great core strength by omega to block oh him. no crushed him poison water.
1: As you might have guessed, if you've glanced at the wrestling news over the past month, we're heading to Japan for Wrestle Kingdom 17, the Tokyo Dome edition of the show. There were two shows this year, of course. The first one in the Tokyo Dome was an all-New Japan affair. The second one in Yokohama was New Japan versus Noah. That was kind of the theme going into that show. But the first one was your more classic Wrestle Kingdom. For those who don't know, it's New Japan's equivalent of WrestleMania. Every year it takes place in the first week of Jan, usually January 4th. And this year... Um, It had our first prime, prime candidate for match of the year. It is, of course, the the co-main event, the penultimate match of the show, the IWGP United States title match between Will Ospreay and Kenny Omega returning to New Japan, shockingly, since he left for AEW. Um, The build to this one was a weird one, in my opinion. Weird work worked shoot insults for quite a few months all over the internet in different interviews and stuff. With arguably limited effectiveness, you might say. Maybe I thought that because I wasn't so sure the match was even going to go ahead. Also, I was just sick of wrestling drama by this point, usually between WWE and AW, But when New Japan got involved and Osprey was shooting his mouth off about Omega, I was like, oh, come on now. Uh, it all actually turned out to prove me wrong and led to an absolute banger of a match in the Tokyo Dome. Um also, I guess kind of there was a real compelling storyline going into this one, not just the the kind of sniping between both parties online, because you had um you had their clashes in AW in multi man tag matches and that sort of thing, but you also had this story of Osprey saying that he is now the one carrying New Japan. Kenny walked out. Why does he deserve to come back and be the returning hero? Where, excuse me. When Osprey's been the one who's been there carrying the load, um, so it was a weird dynamic I thought as well with. At least in my view, going in, Osprey was almost the de facto face defending the company. Omega is the one who walked out, and I thought he would be the heel. But then shortly after that, in fact, the night after at New Year's Dash, you had Kenny Omega teaming with Okada, the biggest face in the company. So it was a weird one because if you watch the way this match played out as well, I think it was wrestled with Osprey as the face too and Omega as the as the heel. But I don't really I don't really know. Uh, the match defied my expectations. Not in terms of its quality; it lived up to the massive hype that it had generated. But um, it defied my expectations in the way the match was, the the format of the match, I suppose, the story that it told. I thought it was going to be a one-upmanship thing um, with both men trying to out wrestle the other and out out showmanship the other. Turned out to be far more brutal and bad-tempered than that, though. It was a dark match, man. Not a dark match. Like it was a it was a match with a with a dark side to it um, Kenny just dominating early on and Osprey trying to bravely fight back that double stomp through the table on the outside and the ludicrous DDT onto the top turnbuckle and Osprey being busted open from that which you don't see that often at Wrestle Kingdom might I add like sometimes you'll see blood in New Japan but it's certainly not as common as in places like for example AEW um, yeah just a far darker match than I expected I thought they'd go all grand and epic and it was kind of partly that but as I say there was a real nasty edge to this one too um it shocked me and and it, it, I think Kenny winning as well was the more interesting of the two results that they had available to them and I guess this is going to build I mean I'm not the only person who's speculated this I guess this is going to build up Osprey for a big revenge victory but but where like some people are saying maybe at the next Forbidden Door show which would certainly be very intriguing I don't think they'll let Kenny just win and move on I think Osprey will get his win back I don't even think Kenny Omega is the kind of guy who Wants to get away with just not putting Osprey back over. He's not Hulk Hogan, do you know. what I mean, he's going to want to. He's going to want to give Will his his due. Um, it's an interesting one for certain. We'll have to wait and see how it plays out. But in terms of the overall match of the year race, there's a reason I wanted to talk about this one first. Not just because it took place early in the month. Um, I think this is a our first clear front runner for match of the year. This this match could possibly still be talked about in in 11 months' time at the end of December as our match of 2023. That is not unusual, given the way that Wrestle Kingdom shakes out. It always happens in January. It always has some very, very good matches on the card. But at the same time, I think that um, there's still a long way to go, you know? And there's been years where we've seen an excellent Wrestle Kingdom. We've thought, how could anything top that? And then, you know, by the end of the year, more things have happened, more things have topped it. Most people's consensus match of 2022 was that third FTR Briscoes match, the dog collar match. And that came really, really close towards the end of the year. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. Um, Just as an aside, that wasn't my favorite match of 2022. That was uh, probably the first Briscoes FTR match for me, just just a normal tag match. But your mileage may vary. All three of those matches were brilliant. Really interesting stuff to kick off the year at Wrestle Kingdom there between Osprey and Omega. It wasn't even the first real banger of a match of 2023, though. That happened on New Year's Day uh, at a show called The New Year, also in Tokyo, Japan, at the uh, Budokan, I think, a Budokan, uh, Nippon Budokan between uh, the NOAH GHC heavyweight champion Kaito Kiyomiya and his challenger, Keno. Kiyomiya somehow,
0: somehow back on his feet, gets rolled over the apron into the ring, Challenger Ken O immediately goes to the top turnbuckle. Yeah, as he should. This is just pure guts from
1: Kimea. I'm not as familiar with Noah as I am New Japan, but what I will say is that uh, they have got some incredibly interesting wrestlers over there. And from the kind of little bits and pieces I've seen from each wrestler, I think the one that I've thought is kind of my special little boy, if you want to call him that, is Kaito Kiyomiya. Uh, the current GHC heavyweight champion in pro wrestling, Noah. Uh, But I thought that going into this match afterwards, I thought maybe my special guy is actually Keno, his challenger. Um, Despite being a match for their big title, this one was also in the penultimate spot of the night. Uh, Just like Osprey Omega was at Wrestle Kingdom, this one was also second on the card behind uh, the great Muta versus Shinsuke Nakamura, of course, which had greater historic significance, but this match was um, clearly the better of the two, a really good match to kick off the new year as well, which um, which was building on a match they had the year before, which Keno won by referee stoppage, knocking Chiamia out, which gave a, a whole thread of intrigue to this match, because you thought, well, if Keno knocked him out once, and now he's the champion, and they're fighting for the belt, Keno could just do that again at any stage and win, so it gave the match a really good sense of tension, I suppose. Uh, I thought it was good. I didn't quite think it was on the level of Osprey Omega, but it was still a really, really good match. Uh, these two wrestlers clearly know each other really, really well. Kenu, obviously, despite being the challenger here, also was the champion earlier on in the year, but lost it to Kiyomir, so there's recent history here. Um, and they just they went out and had a really, a really good match. There was a, a terrifying spot in this one as well, similar to the Osprey Omega match, um, where I think one was dropped onto the turnbuckle or on the apron from high up, and it was very scary. The review sequences here where Keno really shines. Um, it's clear that the two mesh very well together. I think Keno's style really keeps these matches fresh. It's not your typical modern Japanese-style main event. It's a bit more of a throwback, maybe, a bit more shoot style, because of Kano's strikes and his ability to do so. Kiyomiya might be more of a traditional King's Road kind of guy. And they just went out and had a great one, guys. I definitely recommend checking it out. I wouldn't say it's on the same level as Osprey Omega, as I've mentioned, but I do think it was really, really good. Um... And I think it was probably the right result as well, because Kiyomiya won. And then as we'll go on to see, he had a very interesting month as well, getting mixed up with a certain figure from New Japan. We'll come on to that later on in this podcast. But there we go. We're two matches in. We're moving on to the third one. We're staying in Japan, though, for now, because the next big candidate of another great match this month was in a promotion I know even less about called... uh, Now, I'm going to probably mispronounce this. I've always said Gleet, but is it Gleet? It's G-L-E-A-T. Um, this match is available free on YouTube. I would, def- I would definitely recommend it. And the match we're going to be talking about here is for the G-Rex Championship, which is the top championship in the promotion between the champion L. Linderman and his challenger Kaito Ishida. Um, Gleet has an interesting history, or GLEAT, I had to do a bit of research. And basically, when Noah was bought out by the, the, the kind of parent company that owns Noah and DDT, it owns both of them now, Uh, The people who originally owned NOAH were like, from my understanding, well, we still want to have a wrestling promotion, guys. So they formed Gleet, which is a mixture of kind of wrestling and shoot-style wrestling. Uh, They've got two divisions. The the, the main belt, I guess the main stuff all happens in the wrestling division, but with maybe a bit more of a shooty edge than we're used to seeing. It's a bit more strong-style than the major Japanese promotions these days. Even New Japan, which obviously prides itself on being like strong-style wrestling. But these days, you could definitely argue that New Japan... Is more like all Japan was in the nineties. It's a bit more choreographed. It's a bit more structured. It's a bit more epic in scale, and we've got to rely on other promotions to bring that strong style flavour. Gleed certainly did that here, or oh, Glate. I'm never going to know what to pronounce it as. Um, El Linderman was the first champion and has held it since last February. It's a young belt. Uh, he defended it in various different places, against various different opponents, sorry, and then Ishida challenged him. Kaido Ishida, the challenger here, is kind of a a Dragon Gate boy who's now um, come along to Gleet to try and win this belt. El Lindemann was also a Dragon Gate boy, but kind of became more of a freelancer and then settled in Gleet and became its big, the face of the company. El Lindemann's one of the most bizarre men I've ever seen. (laughs) He's short, powerful, and wears the tiniest little trunks, and just has this infectious baby face energy. Uh, The match, as a result, is really entertaining. It's in a smaller venue. You can really hear the crowd. You can hear the the impact on the canvas. I think it really added to the atmosphere. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. It was certainly one of my favorite matches of the month. And at the end of this podcast as well, I'm going to be doing like a top 10 of my personal matches of January. I'm going to keep that top 10 updated as we run through the year. this was a great match. I loved it. I loved the strikes between the two. I've written in my notes here. Loved the strikes. Are we, are we out? Um, maybe one drawback you could argue, and this is maybe my own fault for not being more familiar with both men, but this felt like far more of a showcase for El Linderman, the champion, who lost the match. Kaido Ishida is the second ever G-Rex champion in Gleet. Uh, and the match felt like far more of a showcase for the outgoing champion. I came away from it thinking, well, I need to watch more El Linderman matches, not... I need to watch more Kaido Ishida matches. So I have to keep that in mind going forwards with the lineage of this title. Hopefully Ishida can get some good defenses under his belt. But yeah, another good match. And we'll move on to America very, very shortly. But I'm just going to mention as well a match in Tokyo Joshi Pro uh, between Yuka Sakazaki, the champion, the princess of princess champion, and Miyu Yamashita, Um, the two aces of the company, I suppose, both of them are three-time previous champions, with Miu being the inaugural champion, looking to beat Sakazaki here to become a record four-time holder. Interestingly, Yamash is also the current EVE champion in England, and has said that if she was going to win this match, she was going to represent both promotions as double champion. Didn't happen. Yuka Sakazaki won. Fans of AW might be familiar with Yuka. She's the magical like princess girl who came out to that outrageous theme tune that Ross, my colleague, loved so very much. Um, and they had a good match here as well. It was very tactical and edgy to start, and then like the match in NOAH, like the match in New Japan, a terrifying spot. Um, Basically, Sakazaki's in the electric chair position. She leans backwards and sends Mio all the way over the top rope to the floor hard, and the match kind of escalated from there. Two women who clearly know each other very well going at it, and eventually it was Sakazaki who picked up the win. Um, I don't really know what's next, though, for Tokyo Joshi Pro, until, well, I know they've got a WrestleMania weekend show in LA, and given the popularity of Tokyo Joshi Pro online, or the following it seems to have, I'd imagine that live show will be quite well attended, and possibly have quite a passionate crowd behind it as well, so we'll have to wait and see, but there's just, right, we're starting off the we're starting off the, the whole podcast, I suppose, with four matches there that I've mentioned. We've got the New Japan one, the Noah one, the Gleet one, and that Tokyo Joshi Pro one as well. Um, out of the four of them, I think clearly the best one is Omega and Osprey. Um, but what I would urge you to do is check out those other ones as well if you think you might want to broaden your horizons, especially that Kalit one. I love that L. Lindemann match, man. Even if it left me thinking, I need to know a lot more about L. Lindemann.
0: Let's have a look at what this idiot did in America. Reared back for the Lariat Hangman Counter with the elbow strike And the, oh, Lariat lands Moxley. Uh-oh, buckshot here He staggered, buckshot, buckshot shot! Lariat Can he get him? One, two, three Hangman, hey, what a return,
1: what a win
0: Hangman, Adam Hangman. Hey. Wow
1: Right, let's talk about America Obviously we had um, the Royal Rumble recently, didn't we? And I think that while it was, on the whole, quite an enjoyable pay-per-view or premium live event, I don't think any individual match on the Royal Rumble card was enough to be talked about in match of the year contention. So unfortunately, we aren't going to talk about any of the matches on the Royal Rumble. What we are going to talk about, though, I'm sorry if I'm stoking the flames of inter-fan debate on Twitter here, um, to call it politely. But we're going to be talking about AEW instead, because this month... There were quite a few little bangers on uh, on Dynamite specifically, uh, three of them on the same episode of Dynamite. First of those was John Moxley versus Hangman Page, this kind of grudge rematch after Hangman, of course, was legit injured by a lariat in the one before that from Moxley. Uh, both guys are still babyfaces heading into this one, but Moxley just wasn't remorseful in the slightest. The story really added fire to the match, and oh, it's two very fiery guys anyway, two very likable guys as well. And it, two guys you just kind of want to see get into a scrap and beat the hell out of each other. That's exactly what happened. Uh, There were quite a few lariats, which you'd expect, given the significance of that move in the previous match. So that bled into this one quite explicitly. Uh, I loved how each lariat really meant something as well. They worked the pace very well. It was a really exciting TV match, and I like the idea. I I like the decision to have Hangman win. I like the idea of it being his redemption. Um... Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Just from the general consensus online, of the three or four Dynamite matches I'm going to talk about from the month of January, this seemed to be people's least favorite. And that's interesting because for me, this was my favorite Dynamite match in all of January. So again, your mileage may vary. Let me know what you think um, on Twitter or wherever. It's a podcast, isn't it? I was about to say in the comment section down below, but we're not in the video sphere now. So buckle up. Yeah. Um, I want Moxley to have a rest, man. I've got here under my notes, what's next for Moxley? Give him a rest, please. Because Hangman's in a weird spot, isn't he? He feels like he's a top guy, but I don't think they want him to be the guy to topple MJF necessarily because Hangman's already had his big triumph. I want that to be Eddie Kingston. Um, and I, I, just judging from his position on the card and the stories he finds himself in, unfortunately, I don't think Tony Khan sees Eddie Kingston as that guy, even though in my heart of hearts, I want Kingston to be the one to beat MJF. It could be Hangman. I don't know if it's going to be either. I think we've got a lot of MJF's reign left to go before he falls anyway. But um, yeah, Hangman's in a weird spot. Feels like a top guy, but there isn't really a space for him to be at the minute. And Moxley, just give him a rest, please. That's what I want from him. The next match on Dynamite I want to talk about is obviously Brian Danielson versus Konosuke Takeshita. Brian is the challenger for MJF, of course, gearing up to face him for the belt. I assume MJF's going to win by hook or by crook. Uh, Although I wouldn't mind Brian winning, being the AW champion, but it feels early in MJF's reign for that to happen. Um, And Brian loves losing, doesn't he? (laughs) Loves putting people over. So if I had to put money on it, I'd guess MJF was going to retain. The build to this one, though, was Brian versus Takeshita. Takeshita was a big deal, obviously, in DDT, now trying to make a name for himself in AW, um, and has connected, unquestionably connected with the crowd. He's a very popular babyface. This is really the first example, though, this entanglement with the MJF storylines, this first real example of a sustained storyline or a sustained, I guess you could call it a push maybe. Um, at the start of this match, to to illustrate my point, commentaries say, oh, Takeshta's still looking for that landmark win on Dynamite, which, I mean, I was surprised. Like, think about, think about a good handful of times we've seen Takeshta and he's not even had a Dynamite win. I guess it makes AEW look good because he's like the top guy in DDT coming over and losing to everybody. So anybody watching this who's familiar with both promotions will be thinking, wow, you know, AEW guys are way better than DDT guys. Um, In fact, Takeshita uh, has the third most reigns with the top belt in DDT history and is the second most successful champion in terms of combined days with the belt. And the first reign came way back in 2016. So it's not like he's just a recent hot prospect in DDT. He has been like a big deal over there for quite a while now.
0: Bought by Takeshita. Takeshita Strike. Oh, that caught him. Danielson, look. Danielson shaking his head. No, look at the blood on his wrist. Oh, wow. Danielson lands three, four, five in a row, but yeah. Takesha comes back with his own. Sure thing, I, I was about to say, I think Danielson's got the quickness advantage, but the size and power right there. Oh! Oh! <laughs> Great extension on the legs. So feel like we're watching Mox and Hangman again. Like yeah. The first match we had tonight. That, that lariat from Takashita—it, I mean, it sounded like the crack of a home run coming off a bat.
1: I like this match anyway, Danielson and Takashita. I got a sense that people maybe preferred it to Moxley and Hangman, as I say. I preferred the earlier match a bit better, but this one was still great. Um, really, really good stuff. I think maybe lost its way a bit, like two-thirds of the way through before finding its way back. Uh, because they started brawling and stuff. It got a little bit messy here and there. And I know that feels real and everything, but we'd just seen a big brawl in Moxley versus Hangman, which was between two actual brawlers. I liked this match when it was cleaner and when it was more technical, because both Daniels and Antikesh really excelled when it got to that sort of stage. But I liked the match Anyway, I'm intrigued to see how that Ironman match plays out with Danielson and MJF. And I'm intrigued to see what's next for Takeshita as well. Over the, As the month progressed since this match, he still stayed in the mix on Dynamite, so that's that's good to see. And as I mentioned, even if the booking isn't always there for Takeshita in AW, the crowd is still on his side, and that's always invaluable. Um, the third match on that same episode of Dynamite that I'm going to mention was uh, the AW Trios Championship match, the Best of Seven series, the seventh match of the Best of Seven. Uh, Escalera de la Muerte, ladders of death, between Death Triangle, Park Phoenix, and Pentagon, and The Elite, The Young Bucks, and Kenneth Kenneth Omega. Omega popping up again already, twice on this very podcast. Um, this series, a lot of people, hey, look, a lot of people absolutely love this series. I actually agree with what Matthew said. Um, Botchamania Matthew, the famous Botchamania Matthew. He said on one of our podcasts that, um, I mean, first of all, Matthew was salty AF because <laughs> because Death Triangle lost and Matthew wants Pac to win any match that he's involved in, understandably, being from Newcastle. But uh, I think Matthew's, I think the salient piece of information that Matthew was trying to get across was that, you know, the story didn't really make sense in these seven matches. Like, you had, you had the hammer being used in some of the matches, but then it was legalized. And then in this final match, the hammer was used and it didn't even matter anyway because Omega got his hand smashed and still won the match and was still the guy to pull the belts down. I think I kind of agree with Matthew there to an extent, actually. It's worth noting that Dave Meltzer gave this five stars. Um, I don't mind Meltzer's star ratings. I know a lot of people hate them. But for this, this one, I think, was maybe a bit overrated by Dave. Uh, I don't think it was a five. Um, Obviously, the moves were spectacular. Uh, You've got six incredibly talented guys in there. And yes, it was a spot fest, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. That doesn't, just because a match is a spot fest, what I'm trying to say is there's a time and a place for spotty matches. A couple of things took it out for me a bit, though. Like, the face heel dynamic seemed really off to me. They're all kind of faces, except for Pac, uh, because of the hammer use and everything, but also there's the sense of, like, it's not that deep, they just do cool stuff, but at the same time, I still don't find that a good enough reason, because the Elite are definitely presented as the baby faces here. There's the entrance, there's Carry On My Wayward Son, they're all the returning heroes. They've vanquished CM Punk from the company. And yet... You know, you got Don Callis on commentary healing it up. You've got Omega, who's just been to New Japan and bloodied Will Osprey in a match where I really thought Omega was presented as the heel. I'm going to say it again. And um, that just didn't jive with the match for me, really. It affected it slightly. You Death Triangle cheating in the series, and yet a lot of people want Death Triangle to win, myself included. Even though they are the heels, the elite don't work for me as faces, unfortunately. Um... As I say, you've got Callison commentary. You've got Brandon Cutler on the outside being a big stooge. That's what he does. And he does it really, really well. But it all works better when the heels, I don't know. It's just weird. You also had the crowd, by the way, who were very pro-Death Triangle. In LA, I guess LA is a big fan of Death Triangle. And why not? They're cool. They're cool as flip. Um, It was a fun match for certain, like definitely. But not match of the year quality for me. Um, Despite getting five stars from Ravy Davey. None of the matches on the Dynamite that I'm talking about were really match of the year candidates, but they were all very good TV matches and that made for an excellent edition of Dynamite. I just think that Mox Hangman was my fave. Um, I don't know. We'll see where it goes, the whole trios championship thing. I also want to mention a match from a different Dynamite a week or two later on as well, which was another Danielson match against Bandido. Uh, Still part of Danielson's continuing road to MJF. Uh, Bandido... Is a luchador, but like has way more crossover appeal in America than most Mexican wrestlers at the moment, I think. He's already done big things in Ring of Honor, where he's a former champion. PWG, where I think he is a former champion as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, if you've never seen Mandito, he is a phenomenal all-rounder because he's small and flippy, but deceptively really strong as well. Like He can actually be a power guy. Um, and just has this incredible charisma about him, which is which is weird to say. Or oh, it's really impressive, I should say, because he's he's in a mask. And yet, he still commands the charisma of somebody who you'd normally be able to see their face. Like He's just very easy to get on board with as a baby face. Uh just has this cool factor about him. And and Danielson helped play up to that here. Danielson was kind of wrestling as the heel. Obviously, it was a face versus face match. It was really grapply at the start. Uh, almost Almost like British wrestling style with, like, interesting and unique chain wrestling on the mat and counters and getting into weird positions and having to think and get out of them, they really slowed down the grappling. It wasn't like Zack Sabre Jr. style where people are frantically reversing and trying to grab a limb and it's all very urgent. This was more thoughtful and ponderous, but I think it worked for this match. I think it worked for this situation with both men really presenting what they were doing to the crowd and helping them get on board before things obviously escalated and it turned into more of a modern-style match. Um... Yeah, I really liked it as well. Um, Danielson's had a great month, of course, and I, I really enjoyed Bandido coming in and, and doing what he did with Danielson. It's all helping... <laughs> it sounds so stupid to say. It's all helping build Danielson towards this title match, even though we all know Brian Danielson. We all know he's one of the greatest of all time.
0: Bandito fans have seen this. before. the heart of God. landed funny on his right arm that time he... Bandito in search of that 21 plus here he comes there it is That's one two
1: no Dynamite had a great month I just don't think any of those individual matches were match of the year quality but certainly match of the month quality which is why we're talking about them here
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: And it came here calling for a singles match. <laughs> 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 to be honest, there's enough liability here on the line. <laughs> Now, uh, now calling Acado, saying he's scared to face Kimi one on one. There's a right and a wrong way to do business, and This is very much the wrong way. We are moving to Japan once again because things started to really kick off in storyline in Japan in the aftermath of all the stuff we talked about in part one of this podcast. So, I now want to talk about Wrestle Kingdom. Uh, night two in Yokohama Arena on Japan, uh, on Japan, on January 21st, between uh, this match in particular was between Kazuchika Okada and Togi Makabe, they were one team, and the NOAA represented team of Kaito Kiyomiya, the guy I talked about, the defending champion of NOAA, and his partner, Yushiki Inamura. Um, this match is getting a weird sort of honorable mention, because it wasn't one of the matches of the month, because it was barely a match. It was an angle. And a very effective one indeed for two reasons. One, because it came out of nowhere and New Japan tend not to do this sort of thing very often. Uh, so it really worked because it was very unique. Like if this had happened in in a Western company, we'd have been like, okay, we see we see this multiple times like every show. But matches don't normally end like this in New Japan. So it was really, really interesting. Okada's got his opponent. He's got Inomura in a submission. Uh, Kaido Kiyomiya, the illegal man on the apron, comes in the ring. You may well have seen the gif on Twitter by now boots Okada in the face, bruises his face legitimately. Okada is shocked, and they have what is a really convincing shoot fight, which has obviously worked, but it's it's it looks really real. They're laying it in. Okada loses his composure. Okada's all about having composure, so that's unique to see. Um, and yeah, the other reason this was so effective was because of how real it seemed. Um, so it came out of nowhere, and it seemed very real. Um... This is basically a build to a match next month, or in February, I suppose. This month, between Okada and uh, Kiyomiya, which should be very interesting. The top champion in New Japan and the top champion in NOAH going at it. Uh, I, I imagine Okada's going to win, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against Kiyomiya then being an entrant in the G1 Climax, maybe, later on in the year. We've seen it with NOAH guys before. We've seen it with Marafuji, who's been in the uh, G1 Climax. We've also seen Katsuhiko Nakajima in the G1 Climax, and that is one half of the next match I want to talk about. From this same show, Wrestle Kingdom in Yokohama Arena, um, where Nakajima, Noah's kind of resident bad boy heel arsehole, (laughs) took on uh, LIJ member and former New Japan champion, Shingo Takagi. Um, Nakajima is one of the top Noah lads, but also one of the most controversial as well. Um, He had a really controversial 2022 shoot KOing two opponents in a matter of months. The first one was Tetsuya Endo, one of the top guys in DDT. And it was kind of, it was kind of at a cross promotional show between like, well, two of the promotions involved were Noah and DDT. So you've got Noah's Nakajima shoot KOing Tetsuya Endo, one of the top guys in DDT and champion of DDT at the time it was really really bad like it was really awkward um, when he did it it meant that DDT had to vacate that belt because unfortunately Endo was concussed as a result of the slap that he gave him um, so you've got Nakajima suddenly the guy in Japan with like the most heat on him like legitimate heat <laughs> out of anybody because he's he's messed up DDT's title plan um, he's made them vacate the belt and he's knocked out one of their top guys who I think is presented on the pecking order in general, the sort of general Japanese wrestling landscape as higher than Nakajima anyway. After Nakajima did this, it it, it kind of, as well though, And I'm not advocating what he did. Obviously, you've got to be safe in the ring. You've got to look after people. It did add a certain danger to his matches and made them a little bit more compelling. And that's what happened here with Shingo Takagi because this match felt like the two hardest lads at school going at it. And you're like, who on earth is going to win this one? Because you've got Shingo, who you just need to look at him to realize how tough he is and how terrifying. And you've got Nakajima with this reputation now as somebody who can legit knock people out at any point. He's got a legit MMA background. He's kickboxing and all that sort of stuff. Um, It really made this match, and the strike exchanges specifically in this match, very compelling. Ultimately, a drawback I think was its positioning on the card because this took place as part of a series of matches, best of five, between two the, the two men's respective stables. Uh, LIJ for Shingo and Kongo for um, for Katsuhiko Nakajima um, and LIJ were one fall down going into this match, which was the second last match on the cards. So if you do the maths, Shingo's got to win, so everything's all tied up going into the main event, which ultimately LIJ won. Um so you kind of knew Shingo was going to win this one, but I didn't take away my enjoyment too much. I still really enjoyed it. It was still a, a very interesting match that I, I'd suggest you check out between two very scary men. Next for Shingo, he's got the first shot at Okada since Okada won the belt at Wrestle Kingdom. Um, but as I say, the, the kind of big thing I'm looking forward to in, in New Japan is that New japan Noah clash between Okada and and Kaido Kiyomiya of Noah, the man who kicked him in the face. And between Kiyomiya kicking Okada in the face, and last year Nakajima shoot-knocking out the champion of a different promotion, are Noah the bad boys of Japanese wrestling? Except if you watch Kiyomiya, he's like an adorable baby-faced boy, so I don't know if my theory holds water there. Next, we're going to a promotion I've not mentioned yet. For, apart from Omega Okada, maybe my favorite match of the year so far, and it wasn't one I expected to enjoy as much as I did, we're going to All Japan. Never really one of my favorite Japanese promotions, certainly not modern All Japan, because uh, I just can't really get on board with a lot of the booking over the past few years. When I was doing Wrestlers of the Week, the video series on, on the YouTube channel, I kept finding it um, frustrating because you had this ace, Kendo Miyahara, and then occasionally you'd lose the belt to this dude called Suwama. I don't know too much about Suwama. From what I could tell, he was the mid-2000s Triple H or the early to mid-2000s Triple H of modern All Japan. He'd just win the belt hold it for ages, not be that good. <laughs> because he's old, man. He's older. He's older than Keno Miyahara. And I, I was thinking, like, give it to Miyahara. He's the ace. Let him have a, a long run. Well, since then, they have let Miyahara have a long run with the belt. Um, And I might have been misrepresenting all Japan's booking there. I think I was just exaggerating maybe with my own frustration with the company. But, you know, they've. Sin- Miyahara is now firmly the ace of the company. And this tag team match that happened on January 22nd, um happened between the teams of Kento Miyahara and his tag partner and co-tag team champion Takuya Nomura against the team of Yuma Ayagi and Naoya Nomura. Now, as far as I can tell, and please shout at me on Twitter if I'm wrong, the two Nomuras on either team are not related. But on Google, they have the same birthday. That seems, cr- not, just, not just the date, but the year as well. They were born on the same day. That seems crazy unlikely to me. Did somebody get that wrong? And just think that because they had the same surname, they were the same dude, and just give them the same birthday. I don't know. But it made it confusing to me because are they twins? I don't think they are, but let me know if I'm wrong. Anyway, you've got the two namoras in this match. On one side, you've also got Kenta Miyahara, the ace of the company, the big single champion, and the tag champion with his partner, Takuya Nomora On the other side of things, you've got Naoya Nomora the other Nomora and his partner, Yuma Aoyagi. Now, Aoyagi is an interesting one here because he's being built up as the next challenger for Kento Miyahara. So Yuma's there um, trying to prove himself against the champion, trying to get himself a title shot. And that was the purpose of this match, was Yuma getting his title shot against Kento because Yuma pinned him when all was said and done. Now, the story doesn't end there because Yuma is also Kento's former stablemate and tag team partner. Oh my God, it's like a soap. It's like Coronation Street, guys. This was awesome. I didn't even know much of that. Like, I had to research that to, to kind of for the purposes of this podcast and for understanding what was going down in this match. But if I'd never researched any of it, and because the, the only commentary I could watch it had Japanese commentary, but even without understanding fully what was going on, they told the story so well that I still got a sense of it. I was like, there is something very personal going on here between uh, Kento and Yuma, the two kind of aces of this match, and the two Nomoras as well. And that's what made me second guess myself, like, because it felt really personal. Like, are they actually brothers? Because whenever those two guys were in the ring, they beat the hell out of each other. Whenever Kento and Yuma were in the ring, they beat the hell out of each other. The action was a frantic pace. It was awesome. Clearly, All Japan has a proud history of tag team matches, um, going back to the 90s when they had the four pillars and, and all those epic, legendary tag matches that have gone down in wrestling history of some of the best matches ever seen. And they're clearly carrying on that tradition with matches like this. I don't think it was one of the best matches ever seen, but I do think it was one of the best matches I saw this month. It was absolutely excellent. The story, as I say, was heavily implied through the action. The two main rivals in the match, and you can tell which two of those are just by watching it are going at it, but the two sidekicks, if that's not disrespectful to say, are absolutely going for each other as well. It's like the two slightly lower guys on the card were going, well, if my partner is going to go through hell, I'm going to do that too. And they all just went for it, and it was excellent At one stage, there was a poetry in motion slap. Takuya Nomura leaping off Kendo's back and slapping Yuma Aoyagi in the corner. Um, It was hilarious, but it also really worked in the context of the match. Um, And yeah, at the end of things, Aoyagi got the pin. Um, He pinned the champ clean. And uh, surely earns a title shot because of that. Um, Loved it, man. Just an excellent match. I don't know what else to say about that one. Um, So we'll move on to the next one. Which, oh my word, I've just seen what's next on my notes. We're going to DDT, right? So remember when I said that Nakajima from Noah? and apologies if all these wrestlers are confusing if you've never heard of them, but Nakajima, the bad boy, the one in Noah who knocked out two people, shoot in 2022 and has a bad reputation now. So remember when he, I said he knocked out Tetsuya Endo, champion of, uh, of, of DDT, and they had to strip the belt from him because he got concussed. So then the man who won the vacant title in DDT was a man called Kazusada Higuchi. Now Higuchi... Big, scary bloke. Massive jawline on him. <laughs> and from what I can tell online, uh, Higuchi is like the guy that DDT fans want to see with the belt. So even though it didn't come about in ideal circumstances, and even though it was a vacated belt that he won, and even though it was the sad result of an injury to Endo, Higuchi now has the belt. Uh, it's it's what the fans wanted. Higuchi's got it. And um, had a bit of a sustained run. And then... After, you know, pleasing the fans, he ran into this guy I've never seen wrestle before, Yuji Hino. And they had a match uh, just a couple of days ago, January 29th. Uh, Yuji Hino, (laughs) when I was watching this match on my work computer, my colleague Jack Atkins walked past and went, ooh, that's a a big boy. Yuji Hino is a tank, man. Like, the the pair of them are scary men. Um, This was a real heavyweight title match. And apparently the second in a recent series between the two of them, because the first match they had was just... Oh, I've my water bottle over with excitement. Uh, the first match the two had last year was described as a chop battle. Um, I haven't seen that match, but if that was a chop battle, I want to know what this one was, because they chopped each other infinite times. <laughs> there were so many chops in this one, it was outrageous. At one point, it felt like experimental cinema, where I was like... Are they just going to do this for the whole match? Because they went chop, 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 chop. Then one of them rolled to the outside, so the other one followed him. And chop, chop, chop on the outside. You see the blisters on both men's chest appear in real time as the match goes on, which isn't unusual in modern wrestling. We saw Sheamus and Gunter do that in Wales last year. But this was the chops were on a different level because they weren't doing any other moves. They were just doing chops. So at first I was like, well, I'm going to hate this match then. I was wrong. Um <laughs> Because once the chops became different moves and once they finally started incorporating different things, even the odd shoulder tackle or headbutt or, or, or forearm or suplex, even these basic moves meant so much more because we'd just seen a million and one chops. And it really, it really laid a foundation for the match, which I now hate to admit because I, I, at first I was going, this is ridiculous, the amount of chops. But eventually, the context that it established in the match led to, um, led to the non-chop stuff being really, really compelling, actually. Booking decision was interesting with Yuji Hino getting the win.
0: Higuchi, oh,
1: He's not a name I've ever heard of in the mix of, of people that fans want to see as DDT champion. KOD, openweight champion, to give it its proper title. Um, Higuchi is. Like, he was the guy. He was the chosen one who finally won the belt. Now he's lost it to this dude. And I've seen a lot of flack from people online saying, great match, but the result was wrong. And uh, I totally get where they're coming from. But I'm intrigued to see what's going on with this Hino guy. I like the idea of someone winning it almost out of nowhere. I don't know how built up he actually was, but it seemed like he was not the person people thought would beat Higuchi for this belt. And now I'm interested to see Higuchi getting it back. So it's set up a rematch. And I'm interested to see if they chop each other. Even more times.
0: At this time, please welcome the Mattapinai drum and dancers led by Chief Lionel Custolo. Never before has Mickey James represented her main I've seen people stop it, counter it. I've seen all kinds of things, but to not budge is unreal. And Jordan Grace, look at this. She looks unbothered right now, and she is hands hands off Mickey James. It's no looks like. It's the state of what is happening right now, and you can see how much it angers Mickey James. Oh! Oh! We've seen these slaps.
1: And finally, part four, because I've gone through three parts already. Part one was the opening week of Japanese wrestling action. Part two was all the AW stuff. Uh, part three was back to Japan because they know how to put on good wrestling matches. Part four is kind of just miscellaneous, just matches from all over the place that I thought were good this month. So we'll run through. Um, Impact Wrestling, hard to kill in Atlanta, Georgia on January 13th. Saw uh, a main event between Jordan Grace, the Impact Knockouts champion, and Mickey James. This one was especially compelling because Mickie James is currently doing that Ric Flair storyline. The next match she loses will be her last match. So she could have gone out on her shield here failing to win the Knockouts Championship. And I predicted, and breathed a sigh of relief when I was proven correct, guys. um, I predicted that Mickie James would win the belt. And that means that whenever she loses, she's not just passing the torch in terms of here's the belt, but also you are the person who retired me. To whoever she loses to. Could be Jordan Grace in a rematch. Who knows? This match was awesome apart from one bit towards the end, which kind of, not ruined it, but really put a dampener on it for me. But it was eclipsed a little bit by the moment of Mickey surviving. Her career's still going. She's won the belt. But um, yeah, there was a bit towards the end where Jordan Grace kind of had her in a submission and Mickey just definitely tapped out. It wasn't even a case of like where someone's scrabbling for the ropes and it looks like they're going to tap, but they don't. She tapped, I think, on Jordan Grace's arm, which was wrapped around her. She She did like the MMA tap. And the crowd even went, whoa, and the ref the match carried on and Mickey won. And if it hadn't been for that, this would definitely have been one of my favorite matches of the month, unfortunately. And I know you could say, well, it's just one mistake, but it came at such a crucial point and I can't work out the reason for it. So that's a big shame. But generally, I enjoyed the match. It felt special. Mickey's Native American heritage was played up to during her entrance. Her family was there. Tara, or Victoria in WWE, but Tara was in the crowd crying. It was awesome. It felt really good. Um, It felt really important, and it was a nice feel-good victory is what I'm trying to say. Heading now to Mexico, and CMLL, one of the two big Mexican promotions, uh, a match for the NWA World Historic Welterweight Championship between Volador Jr. and my boy, Rocky Romero. When we went to Japan, I was lucky enough to interview Rocky Romero And the impression I got, honestly, was that he was, first of all, a lovely guy. Really nice guy, Rocky Romero. I'll always hope he does well just from my interactions with him. He came across so nicely. Um, But also, seemed to be a crucial guy in terms of uh, New Japan and Western talent. He seemed like a crucial middleman. He seemed like someone who is involved in wrestling not just in the ring, but out of the ring. He was talking about music production. He was talking about people, like, in terms of, like, not politics. I don't make sound like he was politicking, but he sounds like someone who makes everything easier for the guys on both sides, for the Western guys coming over to New Japan and for New Japan as well. He seems like a really important go-between uh, between the two parties. And I, that might have just been a total misreading of the situations that I saw him in, but I saw him as a really important guy for New Japan and someone who we kind of forget as well can really go in the ring. I certainly was guilty of forgetting that. Um... He had this match in Mexico against Volador Jr., who's getting on a bit. So is Rocky, but Rocky looked, Rocky was moving like a 20-year-old in this match. Volador was not. Um, Volador got blown up slightly, but they still still a really good match, it must be said. And this one's also available free on YouTube, by the way. Um, I did some research into the history of this match for the NWA World Historic Welterweight Championship. Uh, 20 years ago, Rocky beat Volador for the lightweight title in CMLL. 20 years later, they're wrestling for the welterweight one. So they've both gotten marginally heavier. Uh, Rocky's playing the American heel, and I tried to figure out how he got this title shot. So at a previous show, they had teamed together, and a miscommunication led to Rocky turning on Volador. Standard stuff so far, right? Volador then got on the mic and said, right, I want one more match against you, Rocky Romero, right now. So they had a match, and Rocky won in two minutes. (laughs) What? What? Uh, Presumably the crowd went home very unhappy that night. Um, I think, I couldn't find it, but I think Rocky cheated to win inside two minutes, but it got him a title shot. So I was expecting this to be like a big vanquishing of Rocky Romero, like the foreign heel and everything. Uh, It just wasn't. This match reminded me that Rocky is an incredible all-rounder, class performance from him. Volador did really well. As I mentioned, he was visibly blown up, but that's okay. Not to the point where it seriously affected the quality of the match, just that he was breathing heavily from early. But... It worked because it showed that Rocky was taking him to the limit and everything. And it was a long match as well. It was like, oh, 20 minutes maybe? Yeah, it it wasn't just your average kind of free TV match. Um, Volador had held this belt since August 2018, but had only defended it about, I think, 10 times since then. Obviously, there was the lockdown and everything, but 2018, and he'd only defended it 10 times. Mexican wrestling is something I don't quite understand, the booking of it, the politics behind it. It's something I'm fascinated in because sometimes baffling decisions are made and it seems quite interesting to delve into. So we'll have to find out more about that. Um, The resource Lucha Blog is really good for reading about Mexican wrestling, by the way. I'm going to have to try and check out Lucha Blog a lot more. Shout out to them. You can find them on Twitter as well and then links to their website via Twitter. Um, or lost. (laughs) Yeah, Rocky Romero won and is now the NWA historic, um, world historic welterweight champion in a result that audibly shocked the crowd in the commentary and me watching it at my desk as well. Couldn't believe it because they went up top and I thought, well, Volador's finally going to win because Rocky had been pulling out every heel trick in the book, feet on the ropes, cheeky stuff behind the ref's back. They went up top. I'm like, Volador's going to destroy him off the top here. Rocky turns it into an arm bar off the top, back into the ring and the finish was brilliant. They landed... And immediately, Volador tapped out. It was a flash submission victory. Felt very realistic and very good. I'm glad he didn't struggle heroically in it. I'm glad that the impact off the top, combined with being caught in the armbar, was enough to instantly end the match. It worked so well. And was one of my favorite matches of the month as a result. Now, I don't know what's next for Rocky. I don't know how long he's planning to stay in Mexico with this belt and defend it. But I hope, I hope he continues to have bangers. And I this match made me feel guilty for forgetting what Uh, a class act. Rocky Romero is inside the ring. I was too preoccupied with what a nice guy he was out of it. So
0: Welcome back to our very special main event on AEW Dynamite. Jay Lethal and Mark Briscoe honouring the memory of Jay Briscoe. Both men, tremendous friends and in Mark's case a brother of Jay Briscoe. As you see here, Mark, during the break stayed in the match. Jay Lethal had an opportunity to maybe put his Foot on the gas said It's Mark Briscoe delivering. And that comes through. Ricky Seymour's out at the top. Absolutely, those strikes that he used the crowd up. It's an honor to see him on Dynamite. The crowd is now realizing how much they've been missing for such a long time.
1: And finally, a couple of other matches, of course, that I have to mention this month before we wrap things up with my overall top 10 so far. Uh, Mark Briscoe versus Jay Lethal, of course. 100% need to mention that on Dynamite. It's really tragic what happened to, to Jay Briscoe, obviously. Um, from my personal experience, I met him twice, and both times he was so cool, man, the coolest guy. Um, I think the real quality of Jay Briscoe that shone through, and it seemed to, it seemed to um, be reflected in a lot of people's stories about him on Twitter that came out after his sad passing as well, was that Jay Briscoe was a guy who made you feel comfortable like he, his energy he gave off was one of like, this guy's so like, cool. Like, oh my God, I'm scared of him because he's so cool. And then you talk to him and he makes you feel so comfortable talking to him, even though you feel slightly intimidated by this aura he's got. And that was a really nice thing to experience because he made you feel part of his little club. He made you feel part of like, oh, we're on the same wavelength, even though we weren't like mate. Jay was way cooler than me, and he made me feel like I was on the same level as him. Um, and that sounds silly, but, you know, that's the impression you get from him. And everyone's stories about him that have come out since have all been along the same lines. I was new in this promotion. Jay Briscoe made me feel really welcome. I was nervous this day. Jay Briscoe made me feel really at ease. And that's how I remember him. Um, I met Mark Briscoe once, um, and didn't get to talk to him quite as much I didn't really get to talk to Jay Briscoe much anyway but that was the impression I got from him Mark Briscoe I talked to even less and he still seemed like a really cool guy as well this match has made me think wow what a strong individual Mark Briscoe is to go out on tv um so soon after such a horrible event you could tell it was like something he needed to do and he oh man let alone how good the match was because it was fantastic but to be able to pull off that performance under those circumstances. And credit to Jay Lethal as well, of course, for playing his part. But Mark Bresco, man, what a strong, strong individual. And for someone who's normally so funny and so comedic to go out there and put on an incredible, serious performance was just, it's one of those things you only see in wrestling. And unfortunately, it had to come about in such sad circumstances. But I could not not mention that match, even if like, you know, it wasn't the most epic, structured or longest match we've seen this month it definitely deserved a mention on this list. Um, so that's my thoughts on that. And also a match on Rampage recently as well between Jamie Hayter and Emi Sakura. It was a non-title match, but I believe it was a title eliminator. So if Sakura had won, she would have gotten a title shot. The legendary Emi Sakura, I should say. Uh, this was awesome. Both these women like trusted each other a lot with some of the drops and the suplexes they were doing. There were some really scary moments, but it was always in control. You can tell that both are incredibly skilled and physically strong the way they were picking each other up and slamming each other down. Very impressive feats of strength there. And um, Jamie Hayter continues to be a highlight of the AW women's division. I hope she gets more time on the shows. Great to see Emi Sakura back as well. Great to see her as a heel. Um, it was an interesting decision to have her as a heel because Jamie's a heel, but the crowd love Jamie, so she's kind of a face, isn't she? Um, two badasses going back and forth. A great match. I wish maybe that it had been given a bit more time, but it was at least in the main event slot of Rampage, so there we go. And
0: now, the arm is hooked, a ripcord, the hater 8 that's gotta do it! Two, three! Wow, man, great match. There is your winner, the AEW Women's World Champion, Jamie Hater. Excellent match, ladies. Yep. Best match that Eddie Sackers had in AEW, I'll tell you that for right now. Another classic battle of the women's division of AEW
1: so my top 10 matches of the year so far we are only one month in but we'll see how it goes from here at number 10 i'm kind of torn between two uh danielson versus bandido and mark briscoe versus jay lethal i'll give it to mark briscoe versus jay lethal just because of the unfortunate circumstances surrounding it but the way that they rose to the occasion especially mark briscoe Uh, ninth uh, danielson versus tikeshta loved that technical matchup as i said earlier It lost its way a little bit for me when they went to the outside and started brawling, but the technical stuff was top, top top-notch. Number eight, Moxley versus Hangman, the lariat off of the century. Number seven, Shingo Takagi uh, versus Nakajima in that New Japan versus Noah clash um, on Wrestle Kingdom Part Two in Yokohama. Number six, Rocky Romero vanquishing Volador Jr. in Mexico City to become the NWA historic welterweight champion. Number five, Higuchi losing his DDT top title, the KOD Openweight Championship, to Hino in the weirdest chop war I've ever seen, but also curiously really enjoyed. Number four, uh, the first match of the year on New Year's Day, the first kind of great match of the year, um, in Noah Kaido Kiyomiya versus Keno. I talked about that right at the start of this podcast. Um, Kiyomiya picking up the win there. Number three, Gleet L. Lindemann versus Kaito Ishida. Free on YouTube. Check it out now. Uh, G-L-E-A-T. Gleet. 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 Not sure. Number two, that sick all Japan tag team match where Kenta Mihara got pinned, and we'll see where that goes from there. I absolutely love this match. And number one, it's no surprise, but that's for a reason because it was excellent. Kenny Omega versus Will Ospreay at Wrestle Kingdom part one in the Tokyo team. So thank you very, very much indeed for listening. Uh, to this slightly ropey first edition maybe of this podcast. Hopefully I clean things up a little bit as it goes on, but maybe it'll get looser and more fun. We'll have to wait and see. I'll see you at the end of February. Hopefully we can shake up that top 10 a little bit more. Let's all look forward to some bangers and I'll see you very soon.